Welcome to the Prosperous and Happy Life podcast. I'm Mary Hagerman, investment advisor, financial planner, and portfolio manager with Raymond James in Montreal. In this podcast, I'm delighted to share tips and experiences from my quest to help my clients be prosperous and happy. For over 30 years, I've worked with thousands of clients and countless experts, all looking to have a rich and fulfilling life. My interests go far beyond the realm of money, and you'll get a taste of that here. In my interviews, I share stories and wisdom, along with advice from the many experts I've encountered. You can put all of this to good use in your life or your work or both. I hope you'll join me each month for a new episode, either on Spotify or Google Podcasts. Please subscribe, like, and share with friends. If life was a fairy tale, we'd all live happily ever after with the partner of our dreams. But reality is a different thing. In fact, about half of marriages fail, and statistics are even worse for second marriages. So when couples choose to end their marriage or partnership, the financial consequences can be worse than the nastiest bear market. It's imperative to proceed with caution and get good advice. That's why I reached out to two experienced lawyers to ask them how they work with clients who are looking to get divorced. Ashley Trainer is an associate at Divine Schachter Polak and is a trial lawyer specializing in family law and successions. Tamara Ajamian is a partner also at Divine Schachter Polak and her area of expertise is family law and estate matters. Ashley and Tamar, it's great to have you both on the Prosperous and Happy Life podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us today. Yeah, it's great to have two guests, and you both have a ton of experience and lots of valuable information to share with our listeners. It was difficult to, you know, to decide where to start, but I, I think it would be a good idea to start with the initial contact that comes from someone who's looking to get divorced. Like, how does that usually happen on your end? Would you like to start, Ashley? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing that we always do is a conflict search when someone comes into our office, because obviously a lawyer can only represent one party. That's normally how it works. Um, so we would do a conflict search and assuming the conflict, uh, comes back clean, then we would set up a a consultation. And besides, you know, the general information of like, when was, when was the marriage, the, the main question or the main first question rather is, did you sign a marriage contract, um, before you got married? And so that means at the notary's office, you would sign a, a document, um, that would list your matrimonial regime in Quebec, the default. So if you didn't sign a marriage contract, um, it's partnership of a quest. And if you did sign a marriage contract, often that means that you're separate as to property. So the difference between the two, um, separate as to property is essentially what's mine is mine. What's yours is yours above and beyond the family patrimony, which we'll deal with a bit later, but. Um, and then partnership of a quest is essentially everything is 50, 50 of what was accumulated during the marriage. 
Okay, so I'd, I'd just like to back up a little bit. Um, now, when people contact you, it's like, is this a phone call thing? And you ask them to prepare these documents and come into your office? Or, like, how does it work? Like, somebody ca calls you, emails your office? They would normally call us. I mean, um, either by word of mouth, they, they were referred to us. Sometimes it's just the firm in general. Sometimes, you know, someone will call specifically for me or specifically for Tamar. Um, and it's normally a phone call. And before they do any type of, like before I can actually speak to that person, the receptionist will do uh, a, a conflict search. So it's usually by way of a phone call. Right. So before you've, you've even met with them, you do that. And, and I would think that there might be a lot of people who don't even know what type of regime they, they got married under. So tell me just, just a little bit more about those types of regimes and when they, when they come to in effect. I mean, obviously one would think with marriage, but... Uh, so what usually happens is, you know, some people are very much involved in the finances during the marriage and with some couples they're not involved in the finances so you'll have some women and men come in and you know know the terminology and understand you know from the get-go certain things and then you have other people who have absolutely no idea and are you know very much clueless of with all of this so what we normally do is we know in the first five seconds whether the person is aware or not aware we do take the time to explain the difference um, you know, like Ashley said, you're either the default regime, which is partnership of bequests, or you've signed a marriage contract. Typically, the marriage contract is separation as to property, but we've plenty of times have seen marriage contracts with hybrid regimes, part separation, part partnership. Certain assets are specifically separate. Certain assets are specifically partnership assets. You know, we look at the contract. We, it's, it's very specific, client specific. We explain to them um, with that, you know, where they fall. And we always tie into that explanation, the family patrimony, which exactly what Ashley said at the beginning, which we were going to come back to. So, you know, the family patrimony is a regime that everybody in the province of Quebec is subject to. You know, unless you were married prior to or up to 1989 and you had the opportunity until the end of the year in 1990 to opt out, which as the years go by, you're getting less and less couples who fall under that category because, you know, we're talking over 30 years ago at this point. So, you know, it's a it's an obligatory regime. There is five elements that form part of the family patrimony, and that has nothing to do with a marriage contract. So what we normally do at a first meeting, we understand what the assets are, we understand what the liabilities are, we explain to the client that we categorize those items within family patrimony or, depending on the regime, they fall in partnership or otherwise with a marriage contract, and we explain to them where everything falls. No, no, so so just with regards to assets and liabilities, because of course on, you know, in my business, we, I work with uh, clients and we're constantly looking at assets and liabilities with regards to their financial plans and building their wealth. So are you saying that it's a good idea that someone would come prepared with perhaps a list of assets and liabilities? And maybe you could give me some examples of what uh, a family patrimony assets would be. So the, the items that fall under the family patrimony are 
the primary residence, so the home that the couple lives in or lived in, any secondary residences, for example, a country home or a, con a vacation condo, furniture in these both homes would be part of the family patrimony, RRSPs are part of it, private pension plans, furniture, and cars. Now, and QPP. And QPP, exactly. So what happens is the default says you're each entitled to 50-50, but there are exclusions and deductions that the parties would be entitled to depending on where they fall. So like I was saying, once we have an understanding of what the actual assets are, we ask certain questions so that we can understand whether either party is entitled to deductions. And based on that, we say this is your family patrimony. So, for example, one of the deductions could be, you know, my mom, like the client might come in and say, my mom gave me uh, a gift uh, to purchase my house of $50,000. So that $50,000 uh, that was, as long as we can clearly prove that it was a gift, um, is subject to a deduction in the family patrimony. So there's a calculation that is done. And I think that you have to be able to, to clearly show that those assets were kept apart from the family patrimony, do you not? You mean the deduction? Like, you mean the, the inheritance or the gift? The gift, the gift. So if a family member passes away and leaves you $100,000, you could you would open up an investment account that would be just for that $100,000. Exactly. It couldn't be commingled. So, for example... You know, and that's it. Sometimes it's sad because not everybody understands that. But for example, if you got that gift or that inheritance of a hundred thousand dollars and you put it into your joint bank account with your spouse, you've technically renounced to that inheritance because you've now commingled your money with you know your paycheck and his paycheck or her paycheck, and it's no longer clear when you're then trying to put, let's say like a, a down payment on the house, if that 50 or a hundred thousand dollars was from the gift or inheritance, or if it was from your paycheck, or if it was from monies that you earned elsewhere, you know, the money has what we call been commingled and you've essentially renounced um, to that inheritance and or gift. Uh, obviously, you have to have very good accounting methods and record keeping for this this sort of thing. And I just kind of want to get back to this initial meeting. Like, how often does it happen that a husband and a wife or the couple together would come in for this? Is it usually just one of the two who you're dealing with, or would you be dealing with both, perhaps initially? Very, very rarely are we ever dealing with both. Um, under rare circumstances, if, you know, they, they already have a, a consent drafted and reviewed separately by independent attorneys, we might do a joint application and divorce, but otherwise we represent one party because you, you can't have, you can't represent properly the interests of two parties. And the only context where they would come in together is in the context of mediation. But then there's a caveat. You know, when a client comes to see a lawyer separately, that lawyer represents the client. So you're sitting in a room, you know, you can visualize client there, lawyer there, there's confidentiality, the client's talking, the lawyer's giving advice, and it's strictly, you know, in the interest, in the best, you know, interest for that client alone. When you're doing mediation, that lawyer sort of has a different hat, meaning that lawyer is independent, unbiased, not there to give legal advice, strictly there to give information, 
there to sit with both parties and try to help both of them resolve their issues and come to an amicable resolution of their divorce. Very different. So how, when do you decide that, it's, um, that mediation should be uh, suggested? So at the onset, because what happens is you can't have a client come and see you separately and then get involved the other party and do mediation. So at the beginning of the file, you know, at the real, when I say onset means like at the first phone call, usually a client will say, hi, I'm calling for legal advice. Oh, hi, I called because I would like a mediator or they're unsure. And within a minute or two of talking to them on the phone, you know, right away, you know, what direction they're going. That decision has to be made at the beginning. You can always decide later on to do mediation, but you can't do it. Like for example, Tamar, who is a mediator, if someone comes in and wants to be represented by her, Tamar could not then represent the two of, or could not then mediate the couple. She has to either wear one hat or the other. She's either representing the client as their lawyer, or she's the mediator for the party. She can't do both. Okay. So let's, let's go back to the accounting that takes place in the beginning. So you want a detailed, um, uh, details of assets and liabilities of, to be able to separate the family patrimony. Uh, what more do you need to decide if someone requires spousal support or alimony? So in terms of spousal support, um, that is something that only married spouses can claim. So if you're not married, that claim, unfortunately, is not possible. Um, spousal support is a question of means and needs. So what are the needs of the person requiring or asking for child support? And in return, what are the means of the person who is asked to pay that spousal support? We ask our clients to fill out a budget. It's quite detailed and, you know, with things are included in there where typically, you know, you wouldn't necessarily um, think about. Um, and then, you know, depending on what's filled out, what's not filled out, sometimes we would say, oh, let's have some documents. At a first meeting, you know, typically clients are not coming in with like a portfolio of what they have and don't have. You know, we're talking about, you know, clients who are coming in for a first consultation for a divorce. They usually don't come very much prepared. and that disclosure does come in usually at a later point in time and fam in family matters financial disclosure is obligatory so you know whether that person doesn't have that information available um that disclosure is something that's a must and you know would happen as we go along in the course of the file depending on what direction we take obviously at the onset right and just be be because you brought up the word disclosure if one of the spouses comes to see you, says, I want a divorce, uh, starts going through all of these things, you start calculating spousal support, etc. At what point in time is the other spouse advised that divorce proceedings will take place? That is very client-specific. There is no rule. There is no formula. That's a, that's a dialogue between client-attorney. That's first criteria. Second criteria is a question of degree of urgency. Um, does something need to be done right away? Not right away. Are there children involved? You know, is, is there an issue? Is, is there money, immediate related money issues that need to be addressed? That's very client specific. I have files where we can work on the sidelines for months. 
I have files where, you know, the client comes in in the morning and we're sending a letter in the afternoon. Very client specific. Okay. And you mentioned children. So what is the difference in the way you calculate spousal support versus child support? So child support is owed regardless of whether you're married or not. If there's a child of the marriage or the relationship, support will be owed for the child. Now, when we say child support, child, it, it, it's, it's a right that belongs to the child, not the party. So when I have clients, for example, say, oh, you know, it's okay. I don't need um, money from my spouse for my child. I have to tell them that child support is public order. They cannot just renounce to support because the right does not belong to them. It belongs to the child. And basically it's a form or a formula that we, we, we calculate the incomes of both parties and the parental schedule. And it spits out a number that is owed that amount you have to pay unless there's always exceptions. I mean, to everything that we're saying, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule, but as a general rule, that's the amount that you have to pay. You're allowed to pay more, obviously, but unless you fall under one of the exceptions, you're not allowed to pay less. Is there an age for when child support officially stops? So a lot of people have this preconceived notion that child support ends at 18. I have so many people, you know, come to me and be like, okay, well, you know, my son's 18, so uh, he's cut off. And in fact, the rule is when they finish their first undergraduate degree, that is when support is no longer owed for the child. Child support is owed, assuming that the child is living at home and in, is in school full time. Okay. Uh, the children, from my knowledge of stories of divorcing couples, children is often where things can get really emotional and and difficult. You can you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But uh, how about the whole issue of who the child lives with when both parents want to have, let's say, full time care of the children? Maybe you could just give up like a brief overview of how those decisions are made. So I mean, it's a question of either the parties resolve it amicably, or they need to go through the court system um, to resolve it, depending on the age of the child or the children depending of the situation, depending on external factors. I mean, there's a couple of things that come into play um, that would make that determination. You know, there's a big difference if you're talking about a two-year-old, uh, what advice we would give versus if you're talking about a 16-year-old. Um, it's always very situational. And there can't, the court will never impose, like you can't have uh, an order for parental time, for example, on an 18-year-old once they're of major age, even if they're living at home, um, the parental schedule is only going to be used for calculation of support and won't be used in terms of uh, parental time for one parent to the other. And is child support based on how much time the child spends with you? Exactly. It's the incomes of both parties as well as the parental schedule. So, you know, support will be different if the child lives with mom on a full-time basis and the, the father has less than 40% uh, of time, and, or if they both had, let's say, 50-50, then certainly support would change, obviously. 
it could be reviewed at any point in time. It's public order. So if, for example, one of the parties loses their job, they could come to court or come see us and we could recalculate support. Or if, you know, in a consent agreement or a judgment, it says, oh, the parties are going to share, you know, share custody or share parental time of, uh, of their children. And then six months down the line, they realize that, oh, in fact, I have a hundred percent of the time with the child, you know, they'll come back to us and we can always uh, recalculate support based on the current facts. And is it the same thing for spousal support that it can be reviewed anytime? No. So the conditions for spousal support and child support are quite different. Child support is like Ashley was saying is a public order. So, you know, that needs to be reviewed yearly income tax returns, notices of assessments need to be exchanged. The amount needs to be recalculated either retroactively or, or you know, going forward. Um, and like Ashley was saying, and all this happens because it's really the right of the child and not the right of the parent. Spousal support, on the other hand, gets determined, like I said, based on means and needs in a budget, either amicably or imposed by the court. Um, and once, you know, either amicably or imposed by the court, again, it depends on what stage you're at in the file. Um, you know, there's emergency judgments that are rendered where support is ordered. There's final stages of the divorce where, you know, support is ordered. Very, very different, uh, very different criteria, completely different than child support. But once you have a final judgment of, uh, of spousal support, for example, you're not, unlike child support in spousal support, you're not coming back yearly to say, oh, well, he's making, you know, $25,000 more. I want more spousal support. At that point, your needs have already been addressed and an amount has been, you know, ordered or agreed upon to cover those needs. And unless there's a a serious change in circumstances, you can't just come back and ask for more because, you know, Mr. Manan is making more money or whatnot. Okay. So, you know, these are, I'm sure, highly emotional discussions. It can probably be overwhelming for many people. What happens if the outcome of this back and forth results in a, well, okay, maybe not divorced right away, but I'd just like to be separated for now. Is, it, is that a scenario that's plausible? Could you explain the difference between separation and divorce? So there's two types of separation. There's legally separated And there's what we call de facto separated, which essentially is just, in fact, we are living separate and apart. So if my spouse and I decide that, you know, we're done and I move out, there's no judgment, there's no nothing. We are living separate and apart. So we're separated, but there's no legal separation. And normally the only time I would ever suggest to my client to get a separation is A, if they don't believe in divorce for religious reasons or if they haven't been living in the province of Quebec for more than one year, I would then tell them we can start with separation procedures and then, and then we would eventually switch it to divorce. And also, for example, there could be um, certain reasons that we would recommend for parties to proceed with a separation. There are certain assets that remain unpartitioned with a legal separation versus a divorce. So, you know, then it gets a little tricky and a little bit complicated. And that's a question of, again, you know, very client specific. Is it possible that when you're into this type of discussion, 
that you're more likely to go towards mediation or not necessarily? Not necessarily. I, I think mediation is a question of whether the file is a file that can sustain mediation, whether the parties coupled with whether the parties, both of them want to do mediation. It's not one you know, spouse deciding, both of them have to want to do it. It's, so no, it has one is not related to the other. So it's, it's very important for everyone, and we keep reminding our clients, you know, to have a proper will in place, powers of attorney, this sort of thing. Of course, if, if often in a couple, it's the other couple or the other spouse who has power of attorney or who's the executor if something should happen. I imagine that all of these documents have to be reviewed once maybe even before you're getting a divorce, but certainly once you're divorced. So typically what happens is, you know, clients right away will say, oh, he has a power of attorney. Oh, she has a power of attorney. I want to revoke it. Um, so those the power of attorney related documents are very easy. It's very easy to revoke. Um, what happens with, for example, other things that can have an impact? You know, some couples during their marriage take some life insurance policies if you don't revoke the life insurance policy, so let me, sorry, let me take a step back. There's two different types of life insurance policies. There's revocable policies and irrevocable policies. Revocable, as I'm sure you know, is a policy that you can change the beneficiary at any time. So that doesn't require your spouse who could potentially be the beneficiary to have to sign up to say, I'm no longer the beneficiary of your policy. Irrevocable policies, you need their authorization. With a divorce, regardless if it's revocable, irrevocable, once a judgment of divorce is rendered, if your spouse was at that time an irrevocable beneficiary, it will, that spouse will no longer be, it will fall. So you won't need, you know, your spouse's authorization who in the middle of a divorce might not be so necessarily nice about giving you um, sign. that sign off. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's, you know, sort of the, the power of attorney and life insurance part of it. From any other documents, um, for example, you know, we do, you know, have some sort of a checklist. We do tell our clients, you know, do you have a will? Do you have last will and testament? You know, you might want to consider changing it. Um, do you have a mandate in case of incapacity? You know, for example, if your husband is a mandatory or your mandate in case of incapacity, you probably would be interested in changing that if you're going through a divorce. So we have like a little bit of a checklist. We go through all that, not necessarily at a first meeting. We find appropriate times and we deal with it you know, again, client specific. Okay, so all of that makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of things to be thinking of, a lot of ground to, to cover if you're thinking of getting a divorce. And I'm sure it really depends on one, one couple to, to the next, how long a divorce takes, but do you have a, a heads up with regards to that? I mean, like, like you just said, it really depends on the client and where they're at when they come to see us. For example, I've had clients come in who've been separated for over a year and, you know, say, you know, this is what we've agreed upon. Do you mind drafting an agreement for me and getting me divorced? I can do that within a couple of weeks. I don't think we've mentioned there are three grounds for a divorce. One, you've been living separate and apart for a year two, physical or mental abuse, and three is adultery. Um, normally, we, we use the, the one-year separation because it's harder to prove the other two. But 
for, so for example, if I have a client coming in saying, you know, we've been living up separate and apart for two years now, this is what we agree upon. We don't have any children. Can you just draft something for us and, and, and get us divorced? You know, I can get them divorced quite quickly versus other clients who maybe we're still negotiating, but it's a lot of back and forth between attorneys and, you know, maybe if one of the parties has a company and we need to do a forensic accounting that could take several months. And then if it's litigious, then you're looking at at least a year, if not more. I mean, we've had files that have been ongoing for two or more years easily. So the media was telling us that throughout COVID, there was an increase in the request for divorces. Is that what you experienced uh, on your end? I mean, we've been busy. We've been, <laughs> we've been busy. Um, you know, I guess uh, fortunately and unfortunately, right? So mm-hmm. um, unfortunately for the, you know, for the couples going through it, but we, yes, you know, we've been very busy. So before I ask my last question that I ask all my guests, um, perhaps one of you could just review the major points, the major talking points that we address that you expect to cover with a potential client who comes to see you for a divorce? So other than, you know, sometimes at a first meeting, there's other types of conversations that can come up depending on if something else or specific that a client brings up themselves. But barring that and putting that on the side, you know, usually it's exactly what we talked about. You know, is there a marriage contract? Have they opted out of the family patrimony? What is their regime? Um, is spousal support something that's, you know, part of that file, child support, special expenses for the children, um, you know, are we doing, you know, do they want to go to mediation with another office? Uh, What direction are we taking? Is there an urgency in the file? Um, Do we need to do something right away? Do we don't need to do something right away? And then we just sort of take it from there. I kind of just want to add two things that that, you know, are important, but we haven't said. When we were talking about child support, child support covers the, the, the basic needs of the child, for example, um, a roof over their head, basic clothing, food. Um, it does not include things like braces or competitive hockey or you know um, private school. These are, are considered special expenses special expenses are paid on a pro rata basis. So it's, it's only dependent on the party's income, you know, so for example, if the parties have the same income, it would be they each pay 50, 50. It's based on pro rata share and it's above and beyond child support. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, we live in what's called a no fault jurisdiction. So I have a lot of clients coming to me saying, you know, my spouse cheated on me, so I want more money, or I think I'm entitled to more spousal support because he cheated on me for four years. And and the fact of the matter is just because one of the parties was cheated, was not faithful, uh, that doesn't mean that you're entitled to more money or they're going to be penalized somehow. It's, it's, it's a no-fault jurisdiction. Well, I'm sure you have a lot of points that you can bring up, but you've done a great job in giving us an overview or a summary of of what goes on in your office uh, if we were flies on the wall and someone came in for a divorce. So so I thank you very much for that. And before I let you go, Ashley and Tamar, um, I'd like to know what your definition of prosperous and happy is. 
So it's funny that you mentioned that. We were actually talking about that this morning, um, and we both really feel that health is probably at the top of that list. You know, we both feel that without health, we wouldn't be happy, we wouldn't be prosperous, and then really that's, you know, primary um, for all of us. Ashley, did you have something you wanted to add? <laughs> I, 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 I have to agree with Tam. I think if anything, what COVID taught us is that as long as we have our health, everything else is secondary. Absolutely. Well, I love that. Ashley and Tamara, thanks once again for your great insights. We'll have your information in the show notes if anyone would like to reach out for a confidential chat. So thanks once again. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please make sure to subscribe to The Prosperous and Happy Life on Spotify, Captivate, or Google Podcasts. We'll be releasing new episodes the last Friday of every month. You can also sign up for our free monthly newsletter on my website, www.maryhagerman.ca. And in the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Mary Hagerman. The link is in the show notes. So see you next time. Express the opinions of Mary Hagerman and not necessarily the opinions of Raymond James Limited. Statistics, data, and other information presented are from sources RJL believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchases of securities. Investors considering any investment should consult with their investment advisor to ensure that it is suitable for the investor's circumstances and risk tolerances before making any investment decisions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and should not be construed as providing legal, accounting, and or tax advice. Should viewers have any specific questions and or issues in these areas, please consult your legal, tax, and or accounting advisor. RJL is a member of the Canadian Investors Protection Fund.